One summer, when I was a teen in the early 2000s, some friends and I were signed up for what was essentially a real-life Oregon Trail simulation by our parents. No technology or modern conveniences, sleep under the stars, cook over a fire, hunt, even pull around a fucking handcart. The simulation was organized by a local church. It was held over a long weekend on a large plot of land privately owned by a member of the church. Hundreds and hundreds of acres of untamed territory. Thick forests, wild animals, and long stretches of hilly land with tall grass. Perfect for getting lost. The weekend started out uneventful enough. My friends and I were dropped off with the very few personal items we were permitted to bring. Our guide organized us into small groups with two adults leading each group of a dozen or so teens. I didn't know anyone in my group, so I just made small talk as we loaded up our belongings and sleeping bags into the handcart as I tried to ignore the dark clouds looming in the distance. Feeling like oxen, we pulled the heavy handcart over the grassy hills and through the woods, stopping every couple of hours to take breaks and listen to the adults as they taught short lessons on basic wilderness survival. For one lesson, the guide released three chickens, and we were instructed to catch the chickens so we could slaughter them and eat them for dinner. It was barbaric to us city kids, but we did as we were told. Except we could only find two chickens. We searched and searched, but only found random tufts of bloody feathers. The guide shrugged it off, assuming something else had caught it first. I exchanged glances with my friends and laughed it off, but couldn't help feeling a little spooked. As the evening drew closer, so did the dark clouds. Wind howled and thunder shook the ground while the storm clouds plunged us into premature darkness. I was scared. We didn't have umbrellas, rain boots, or any protective outerwear since we were dressed in 1800s-style clothes for authenticity. We had somehow gotten separated from the other groups and were helplessly lost. One of the adults was trying to call the guide on his brick-like cell phone, but the storm and spotty reception prevented calls from going through. We'll be fine, he assured us. As if on cue, sheets of heavy rain pounded onto our backs and the field was quickly flooded due to the sudden introduction of rain. Soaked to the bone and miserable, I glared off into the darkness while I pushed the heavy cart. And then I saw it. A pure white figure standing perfectly still and shining in the distance. I blinked and looked away, thinking that the thick rain and flashes of lightning combined with my fear of the storm were playing tricks on my eyes. I shouldn't be able to see anything that far away in this darkness, I thought. I totally imagined it. I glanced over again, but it was still there, closer this time, like a white statue of a tall man with its head tilted ever so slightly to the side. I tried to grab the attention of the boy next to me, Mike, but the deafening thunder and howling wind made verbal communication almost impossible. I tried to ignore the figure, but like an idiot, I kept looking back. Every single time I looked, it was closer. But how? I never once saw it move. It was so solid looking, not pale or see-through like paranormal entities are described to be. The figure had no discernible features, yet I could feel its eyeless face staring at me. And was that blood dripping from its invisible mouth? Panic was setting in. The storm had literally blown away our campsite. We couldn't get a hold of anyone to help us. 
People were slipping and getting injured, our rations were ruined, lightning was surely going to strike the cart, and whatever the fuck this white figure was kept inching closer. I squeezed my eyes shut as hot tears streamed down my face. I felt something pull hard on the hem of my dress and I fell to the ground, banging my knee on a sharp rock. I yelped in pain. That's when I felt it. A large hand firmly gripping my shoulder. I froze. We were in the middle of a field and hadn't seen anyone for hours, and Mike and I were bringing up the rear of the group. No one was behind us. I didn't dare look behind me. I gripped the wet cart and with as strong of a voice as I could muster, whispered, Leave me alone! I felt the hand lift. Still too petrified to open my eyes, I blindly pushed for a moment until the sound of thunder, rain, and wind suddenly faded away, as if someone had pressed mute on the soundtrack of this nightmare. For just a brief moment, there was deafening silence. And then, a shriek. A flash of lightning filled the darkness with white light, and I whipped around to see Mike seize up, rigid as a board, and then fall to the ground with a sickening thud. The sounds of the storm returned with the darkness, and I shouted for help. I couldn't move Mike. He was a foot taller than me and weighed at least twice as much. Someone ahead of me noticed that Mike and I had let go and rallied the adults and the other teens to our aid. Mike was unconscious, and his body was strangely stiff. He was too difficult to move with our weakened bodies and slippery, muddied hands. We formed a circle around him with our backs to him and sat there in the pouring rain. I put my head between my knees and prayed I wouldn't see the faceless white figure again. I had no proof that it was the one that harmed Mike, but I had no doubt it was a culprit. Eventually, a rescue team came for us and brought us to a nearby shelter. Mike finally woke up but remained oddly rigid. The medical team questioned him, but he didn't say a word. I told them I had seen him fall, so they recorded it as such and treated his injuries. When things settled down, I asked him if he had seen it too. Wordlessly, he stared straight ahead, and slowly turned just his eyes to me. It felt as though the terror in his eyes was piercing my soul. He hugged himself and laid down on his cot, turned his back to me, and whimpered like an injured dog. I didn't sleep that night. The image of the featureless entity was burned into my mind, and I saw it every time I closed my eyes. I never saw Mike again after that. The trip was cancelled, and we were all sent home. It wasn't until I was unpacking my bag later that I noticed something smeared on the muddy dress I had been wearing the night before. It was faint, almost undetectable under the grime, but a bloody handprint was definitely there. Hi! I'm Jamie Markey. (laughs) <laughs> I love how chipper you are after that story. That was a terrifying story. It was terrifying. Um, oh, and I'm I'm uh, a really moved Michael Tatum. Okay. That story moved me. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, yeah, there's all kinds of movement going on inside my soul right now because of that story. Yeah, what what kind of movement? Terrifying movements. Terrifying movements, yes. yeah. Yes. Right, I get it. It's a terrifying story. It's similar to a bowel movement, but it's more spiritual. But it's like shittier. 
And this is Ghoul Intentions. <laughs> what, are we, what are we calling today's episode? Today's episode is We actually is had called... a, a title picked out we did previously, it. unlike last yeah. time. Because we're a little more, I, I feel that we're a little slightly more, more together. Slightly more on point, a little more together than we were last week. Yeah. Because I was sick. Yeah. And, and we were both scattered. just like, ugh, fuck Right. It's been a hard time. Life is it's hard. Been is hard. It is. It's the mountain. Are the mountains are calling? Oh yeah, the yes. mountains are calling. That's from uh, John Muir. Muir. It's, the whole uh, thing is the mountains are calling, and I must go. Yeah. What is that from? It's from some. It's a quote of his. Uh, he wrote a lot of stuff. He was a he was a conservationist. He mm. I think would have. I think they celebrated his hundred and seventy fifth birthday. Just a few years ago, oh, um, he was a—he's a huge reason why national parks are a thing. Oh, okay. So he was—he was a naturalist, kind of along the lines of, like, say, the you know Thoreau or whatever, who wrote a lot about his experiences in the wilderness, and he loved nature oh, above yeah. all else, and he loved climbing mountains, and he was all—he was a really interesting guy. I should read more of him than I have. I've only read snippets here and there, but um, he seemed like a really fascinating right. guy. Very hmm. much, his heart was in nature. That's awesome. Well, and we have Amy to thank for this story and pretty much the direction of this episode. True. True. So thank you, Amy. That was a damn good story. Fantastic story. Fantastically good. written. Yeah. Love it. Hate that for you and poor Mike. Man. Mm, mm, makes mm. you wonder the description. What the, and the fuck hand. was it? Because some, some ghosts seem so weak by comparison. I mean, not, I mean, they're still terrifying, but they don't seem able to do much. And then some ghosts have the power to leave traces yeah. like that and to, you know, to physically affect other people. Like, what? I want to know. Is there, like, a hierarchy of ghosts? Right. And this, like, I when mean... when you become dead, is there, like, an academy you can go to to, like, learn powers? Mm-hmm. So that, like, say, a ghost that you just see every now and again, that's someone that's, like, maybe in first grade. Right, yeah. Whereas someone that, you know, a ghost that has this kind of ability is, like, a PhD holder. Yeah, it's elevated. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, the bloody handprint on the dress and nope. the shoulder i'm guessing uh-uh. so that's creepy and then what would have happened to the guy to make him go stiff like that uh-huh. makes me wonder if maybe it instigated a seizure or something like that i don't know but if they didn't i mean normally but i guess it, they didn't actually have medics there it was just the people who were there yeah because they had to wait for yeah i don't know help. it's some sometimes having a you know a condition like epilepsy or mm-hmm. Uh, something else like that can predispose one to these kind of experiences, mm. which I'm not suggesting they're hallucinogenic in any way or hallucinations in any way. I'm just right. suggesting that there seems to be a corollary sometimes that if they're um, vulnerable, they're that more makes likely. them vulnerable to to certain things right. that we don't yet know how to detect. But you don't have to be epileptic to have seizures. That's true. You know, that's very you could true. Have just been just like, did you know? Did you know that uh, you don't have to have a me- you don't have to have a headache to be having a migraine? In fact, headache is not even uh, necessarily the chief feature of a migraine in most people. Is it sight? It's, it's um, audio and visual hallucinations oh. of a certain character and just certain mood swing things. Like, migraine is a the, the term migraine. Uh, Oliver Sacks, the guy that wrote Awakenings and the man who mistook his wife for a hat. A lot of very famous neurobiologists, neuroscientists, uh, wrote a book on migraine. It was really cool and really fascinating. Open my eyes because I used to suffer from migraines when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but the headaches went away, but some of the other features stayed. And I, mm-hmm. I didn't realize, oh, I'm still having a migraine. It just doesn't manifest as a headache all the time. Right. Which is interesting. But, you know, and I wonder if there wasn't some connection between that and some of the experiences I had as a kid. Again, oh, not suggesting yeah. that they were hallucinations, because I don't think they were. But, like, we were talking in uh, the Ghosticles episode recently that sometimes being a kid can make you closer to... Right. Uh, you're more in touch with, with that third eye, so mm-hmm. to speak. Well, you haven't um, built up the walls. Exactly. You haven't been it. conditioned out of those those right. tendencies by life. Uh, right. So I wonder if certain medical conditions predisposes one to being more sensitive to these mm-hmm. kinds of things. Well, more vulnerable to... To see it. Yeah. You know, like when you're drunk, yeah. you're more likely yeah. to see it. Well, and they, you know, it's the same thing with, you know, we talk about um, sleep paralysis mm-hmm. and that documentary we've talked about it several times uh the nightmare the nightmare yeah what is the difference you know what is the difference between just regular sleep paralysis and something more well the difference is the narrative Mm -hmm. you know we tell about it because on some people it's like first and that's what that documentary is so interesting is Mm -hmm. because on the one hand some they, they interview multiple people who suffer from from repeated constant uh like every night yeah Uh, sleep paralysis and some people are content with the scientific narrative which is just as valid and other Mm -hmm. people are like no this is this is something more for some people it's demonic for other people it's perfectly logical neurochemical other people it's uh, alien abductions i mean it's it's really interesting how many different ways this can be interpreted because ultimately i think it all boils down to some belief system whether you want to admit it's a belief system or not i still think the logical scientific viewpoint as valid and as useful as it is in many areas i still think when it comes to this stuff it's still a choice it's still a belief right well because a belief in nothing is still a belief it's true so that's true so you are doing oh well keeping with this sort of nature thing <laughs> the nature theme mm-hmm. uh well the especially with the mountain i i am doing a kind of well-known story it's the the atlov pass <gasps> Yay! hope i said it correctly i just wanted to kind of give it kind of the russian we say it dietlov dietlov pass i like it um what do you know about the story uh i know i know um a fair amount because yeah. i watched that movie and then i was like hmm, no i haven't it? seen the movie is it a fictionalized account yes yeah okay. yeah yeah I don't know how much this will measure up to the movie. Uh, I like I like the true stories, so it's a, it's a fascinating story, yeah. and it is known. It's one of the more perplexing mysteries of its kind, mm-hmm. um, and there's just a lot of weird. Um, it's I don't know whether I'd classify it paranormal or true crime. There's certainly odd features about what happened right. that make it difficult to explain. Why not both? Right. They're not mutually exclusive categories. That's right. That's what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. So the Dyatlov Pass incident essentially uh, involved that bet- between the 1st and 2nd of February, this was in 1959, nine experienced ski hikers died mysteriously while trekking through the Ural Mountains of Siberia. Um, the members were all either students or alumni of the Ural Polytechnic Institute, hoping to earn the coveted grade three hiking certification, the highest such accreditation then available in Soviet Russia. So they were experienced hikers. To get the grade yeah. three, you had to have hiked in wintry conditions, I believe, at least 300 kilometers total. Wow. Okay. Uh, and these are, were, they were not, they're from, were they from the States? No, no, no. They Where were all they, from Russia. They, they were, were all, they were okay. all, uh, Russian. All Russian, judging from their names. You're not going to hear many of their names because I can't pronounce most of them. Oh, I want to You're going to hear a handful of them, but they're all like, they're just like with me me just sounding like I had ripped out my tongue and was asking for water. Um, 
So after months of planning, uh, they had set out to reach the slopes of Mount Otorten, a name given the imposing peak by the indigenous Mansi people, meaning roughly Mountain of the Dead. Now, supposedly, red this charming... Red flag! Red flag! <laughs> well, and exactly. Now, <laughs> supposedly, this charming little moniker referred to the barren soil and harsh climate. Not a lot of life um, on this in this region. But given what befell this ill-fated group of young men and women, all experienced outdoor enthusiasts, O'Torton might just as well have been an omen. Now, the pass is named Dietlov for the expedition's leader, uh, <laughs> Igor Dietlov, a 23-year-old radio engineering student at the Europe Polytechnic, and the expedition's leader. Um, he assembled a team of eight men and two women and felt optimistic they could reach the mountain on foot from the village of Vizhai in just a matter of days. And at just under about 80 kilometers away, Vizhai was the closest human habitation to Otorten and the group's last chance to enjoy what little civilization they could before plunging into the unforgiving wilds of a Siberian winter with only their wits and equipment to keep them safe. And that was fun for them. And mind you, well, this was their, this was their passion. This was their passion. Hmm. Um, I mean, they're young, they're brilliant, and they love being in the outdoors. And they're getting to trek an area that hadn't been trekked a lot. In um, a Russian winter. In a Russian, well, that's, you know, they were used to Russian winters. They were Russian. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> Are you trying to suggest they ask for this? I'm not saying <laughs> it's what they were wearing. I'm saying <laughs> that... <laughs> It is definitely not what they were wearing, but that will come into play. Yeah, um, right. Okay. You know what I'm saying. Anyway. So uh, on, on January 25th, while uh, on the train en route to Vizhai, one member by the name, and I'm going to fuck this up, um, Zinaida Kolmogorova wrote great. in her journal, quote, I wonder what awaits us on this hike. Will anything new happen? End quote. Yes. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Now, the group alternated between uh, just about every conceivable mode of transportation along the way. They took a train, they took a bus, they took a truck, they even took a horse-drawn sleigh at some point before finally embarking on foot from Vizhai on January 27th. Now, on January 28th, one of the group members, a guy by the name of Yuri Yudin, had a bad knee that began acting up. He also suffered from rheumatoid arthritis and from and from a congenital heart condition, which is thought to have contributed to his ideas. Like I, he he told them basically, I I can't continue. I'm this is going to be too much for me. I'm sorry. I I overestimated. I imagine he said to them, I overestimated <laughs> I my ability. I feel like he was like, oh, I got this bum knee, you guys. I just... <laughs> well, and so he turned around. I just around. can't do it. I can't go. He turned around and went back to Vizhai and went back to... to uh, went back home. Now, there are photographs of him and the mm -hmm. group saying goodbye to each other as they were preparing to leave without him. And they were they were sad to, you know... What year maybe, was this again? This was 1959. 1959, okay. Uh, and there there's a lot of photographs of, yeah. of the, the group. Um, before what happened happened. It's how they know so much about their route and where they went wrong. But he turned back, and it turns out that this was the last time Yuri would see any of his friends alive. Now, diaries and cameras found around their last campsite make it very possible to track their route up to the day preceding the incident. On the 31st of January, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began readying themselves to climb... Uh, the sort of lower regions of O'Torton, which was part of their their uh, objective. The following day, uh, they had, excuse me, they had um, 
in a wooded valley nearby, they had stored surplus food and equipment necessary for the return trip, which is part of just right. routine. The following day, on the 1st of February, they started to trek through the pass, now bearing Dyatlov's name. Uh, at the time, it was just a, a route no one had taken, uh, or not very many people knew of. It seems they had planned to get over the pass and make camp on the opposite side that night, but a raging snowstorm impeded visibility and forced them off course by about 26 Miles. There are what? some photographs. Slightly off course. Yeah, two point six miles. That's a Jesus, lot. that's a lot. Yeah. Um, but they, it's once you start going, you realize. And there's, there's, eerily enough, there are photographs of them in the snowstorm that they were taking, mm-hmm. and you can barely make them out. Right. You know, and these are the, all the other pictures are pretty clear, but here they are in the snowstorm, and it's like, damn, that shit was yeah. rough. It was really, really rough. Now, realizing their mistake, they decided to stop and set up camp on the slope of the mountain rather than the forested area roughly a mile away. This seems odd at first glance because the trees would have provided better shelter, but it's thought that the outlaw didn't want to lose the altitude they'd already gained and felt this was a perfect opportunity to practice setting up camp on a slope, a skill he hadn't quite mastered yet. Now, um, Dyatlov had told friends and family uh, prior to leaving Vizhai that he would send a telegraph once they'd made it back to Vizhai, which he felt would probably be around February 12th. When February 20th came and went without word, the hikers' friends and families organized a search party with volunteers from the Institute. And they searched and they searched and they searched. On February 26th, the group's tent was found on the slope in tatters. A guy by the name of Mikhail Sherdin, the student who discovered the tent, said it was half torn down and covered with snow, also that it appeared to have been rather poorly set up in the first place. Most of the group's shoes and warmer clothes were found still inside. Rips in the canvas suggested that the tent had been ripped open from the inside in several places. Sets of footprints leading away from the tent to the edge of the nearby woods suggested that all of them had gotten out, but not necessarily at a frantic pace. Um, Some, however, judging from the prints, were barefoot, others only socked, but whatever they were wearing, no one, apparently, judging from the tracks, had had worn more than one shoe when leaving the tent. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, and this is in February in Siberia. So they disappeared when... They disappeared. The last thing we hear of them is February, the the night of February 1st, morning of February 2nd. Okay. And they didn't find this until the 26th? They didn't find this for 26 days. After this happened, Mm -hmm. it it wouldn't have been able to snow because of the tracks, right? Well, some track, it depends. Like some areas, like they they did find tracks and Mm -hmm. I don't think there there, there was snow. I mean, there's record of the tracks. I don't have records of the climate or the weather at the time. So I think the snowstorm that we know them to have gotten lost in originally was the last snowstorm to hit the place. Okay. Um, It seems to have been because their tracks figure a lot in in what was found. Okay. but they also were able to judge. Well, we'll get to that. But okay. we know to judge whatever happened to them happened on the first or the second, judging by the tracks and judging by their records, the because they all kept thing. diaries. All nine members or all nine yeah. remaining members, because it was originally ten. But then Yuri Yudin uh, uh-huh. said he he was like, nah, and fucked off. But for twenty, so for twenty five days after, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no snow. Not enough to cover the tracks. Now, okay. I, I am not a tracker myself. Right, so I don't know. I it don't just... know what's involved and how one can Strange. uncover tracks. Now, they yeah. do mention, uh, old reports mention that the tracks only left, only were about 500, only uh, 
trailed about 500 meters from the tent. And after that, they were lost in the snow. Okay. So I don't I don't necessarily know what that means. Mm-hmm. Now, at the forest's edge, now mind you, the forest was about a mile away from where the tent was. Um, at the forest's edge, beneath a large cedar tree, the search party found the remains of a small makeshift campfire. Beside this lay the bodies of Yuri Durishenko and Yuri Krivonoshenko, both dressed only in light shirts, underwear, and socks. Mm-hmm. Marks on the tree and a few broken branches indicated that one or both of the men had attempted to climb it at some point. Hmm. Some distance from the cedar tree lay three more corpses splayed in poses indicating they had tried returning to the tent. Uh, they were dressed a little more warmly than the first two bodies, but not by much, as they all still lacked boots, hats, and gloves. All three bodies were facing the direction of the original camp, as though struggling to return at the moment they froze to death. Of the five bodies found on February 26th, several did bear minor injuries, but had died, it was determined, of hypothermia. Mm-hmm. Four of them, it was determined, had been intoxicated at oh. the time. Now, the remaining four members of the expedition weren't found until May 4th. They were discovered about... Uh, so, February, March, April, May. So, uh-huh, three months later. Uh-huh, okay. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, under four meters of snow, they were found in a ravine under four meters... Excuse me, let me start over. The remaining members were found on May 4th under four meters of snow in a ravine 75 meters further into the woods from the cedar tree and in the opposite direction from the tent. They were better dressed than the first bodies uh, discovered, um, and they had all sustained lethal injuries, which resulted, of course, in their deaths. One had a fractured skull. The other two had several fractured ribs and showed signs of massive internal hemorrhaging. The medical examiner uh, for the case determined that the injuries had been sustained in a fall. One of the bodies, a female, was missing part of her tongue. Both eyes, parts of her lips, segments of facial tissue, and a fragment of skull bone. She also had skin macerations on her hands. Now, her external injuries, according to according to the medical examiner, her external injuries were thought to be consistent with decomposition in a wet environment, right. wet, cold environment. And mm-hmm. indeed, she was found face down in a small stream that was running beneath the snow. Okay. So what happened to her face and eyes probably owing to that and not, and had nothing to do with how she died. Yeah. She probably died in a fall. Um, The last of the four bodies had a broken nose and a deformed neck, but seems to have survived the fall and died of hypothermia much later than the other three. (gasps) Oh, no. So a legal inquest began immediately following the discovery of the first five bodies on February 26th, the three Mm -hmm. uh, and the the two beside the makeshift campfire in the tree and the three that were between the tree and the tent. Three between the tree. Three between the tree and the tent. Okay. Yeah. Right. It's just fun to say. I wanted to say <laughs> it. That's all. If you ever get tongue-tied, just remember the... Uh, Three between the tree and the um, But after the, the discovery of the four bodies in the ravine in May, the narrative shifted dramatically because now it looked like foul play was involved. Right. Now, everyone else had died of hypothermia, but these three had sustained in, like massive, massive injuries. And the odd thing is, though they were found at the bottom of a ravine, the ravine was not thought to be deep enough for them to have been injured as badly as they were were mm. um some speculated that the indigenous mansi people might have murdered the group for encroaching on their lands but uh the facts just don't support that hypothesis um one 
only the victim's footprints were found around the tent. Uh, and the bodies themselves didn't, even though they sustained injuries, there was no sign of defensive wounds or struggle of any kind. Right. Uh, ultimately, what killed them, the, the medical examiner put the theory to rest once and for all and said that no human being could have done what was done to these bodies. Right. Period. And finally, <laughs> decided to, like, not knowing what killed them, uh, said that, uh, put down the cause of death for these four in the ravine as, quote, so, uh, an unknown, compelling natural force. Period. Mm. That's got to be the most mysterious fucking mode, like cause of death, yeah. ever to be put on a certificate. I mean, now, it just makes you, people wonder. Ooh, what? Right. And uh, so now, is, now is why some of the victims were undressed, like the the yeah. like the, the two Yuri's found uh, beside the campfire. Yeah. There is a thing that that often results in cases of hypothermia called paradoxical undressing. Yes, I've where heard of this. due to to what's going on with your blood flow and what's happening to your brain in the final moments, that people tend to hallucinate that they are burning up. Yeah, they get overheated uh, and they take off their clothes yeah. to cool off, which, of course, exposes them that much faster, and they die very, very... It does not take long to die of hypothermia once you are exposed yeah. at all, um, which is something to bear in mind, anyone that wants to go camping. Yeah. Um, six of the hikers died of hypothermia, three of fatal injuries. Evidence suggests they died within six to eight hours after their last meal, and moreover, that they left the campsite on foot of their own accord and in no great rush. The clothing worn by two of the victims, this is an odd detail, but there is an explanation for it. The clothing worn by two of the victims, specifically the guys by the campfire, uh, it was, let's see, it was two pairs of pants and a sweater tested slightly radioactive. Mm-hmm. Now, the inquest officially ceased in May of 1959. The documents involved in the case, however, were sealed until the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. So, uh, among the weird details, a friend who attended the funerals for five of the hikers recalls that their skin had a strange brownish tint. And another odd detail is that a group of hikers roughly 50 miles south of the incident reported seeing strange orange lights dancing in the sky just to the north, which is where right. the Dyatlov group would have been. Yeah. Um, the military and meteorological, uh, meteorological service in the nearby village of Vivdel reported seeing similar lights in the sky that same month. Oh. So this wasn't an isolated incident, at least not the lights. Um, now, it is two things that can explain the lights and the radioactivity. Uh, it's Russia. It's <laughs> There you go. Um, sorry. And then Did I say two things? I meant one. Well, well, the first thing is, so the two men that were found at the campsite also worked at a munitions plant. Mm-hmm. And so it's not uncommon. When, the, when people hear the term, oh, the clothes radioactive, they were thinking, oh, shit. And it, everything is radioactive. Like, in theory, everything. Theirs were just slightly more than the others, which is explained, to my satisfaction at least, by the fact that they worked in a munitions plant. Mm -hmm. Um, And specifically a nuclear testing... Nuclear? Did I say it right? A nuclear testing plant. So their clothes would have more than likely had that regardless. So that's not anything worth attributing to their death or it's nothing worth wearing a tinfoil hat about (laughs) yes okay uh as for the orange lights that were seen in the sky it's also worth noting that the the final campsite the tent and all that was located on a direct line where r7 rocket tests were being conducted by a major soviet nuclear testing facility 
Um, now, but kind of lending itself to the paranoia, in 1999, the chief inquest officer by the name of Lev Ivanov published an article admitting that the investigation had no rational explanation for the incident, but he also wrote in that article that he was given orders from on high to stop the investigation outright once questions of UFO sightings became involved. Now, there is, uh, there is one... YouTuber that I've watched discuss this, and he he kind of explains he's read the medical reports. Um, I am blanking on his name, and maybe I'll remember it by, by the time I'm finished. <laughs> but he uh, says, and he makes an interesting case. I only have one point of contention with it that I can think of. He says that um, if the tent was badly constructed, which it seems to have been, mm-hmm. it's possible that it just collapsed on them in the middle of the night. Uh, some of the macerations, in other words, burns on mm-hmm. on one at least one of the body's hands suggest that uh, now they had a there was an exhaust pipe, a little uh, heating element basically mm-hmm. in the tent to keep them warm, and there was an exhaust pipe uh, that there was a hole cut out of the tent for. It's possible that that went awry. Maybe it filled with smoke and the the, the tent collapsed, or... whatever, and they all woke up. With, you know, full stomachs, because they'd only eaten a full, you know, a few hours before they were had maybe been drinking a little bit. And so they they slash their way out of the tent to figure out what's going on because they think a fire is happening. Yeah. And um, or it could be that in that time, uh, several of the others that were more warmly clothed, the four that were found in the ravine, they were wearing their their gear. Right. Um, so it could be that they were out hiking, doing something off to the whatever west from wherever it was and they fell in the ravine it could be the other group heard them it started some kind of commotion in the tent as they were trying to figure out what to do and things collapsed they slashed their way out um and being maybe intoxicated they weren't in their right minds and so they fucking shuffle their way towards the direction they think of the ravine but they're actually off course and they end up going holy shit okay let's just start a fire whatever and the others i mean once they start once they um I think the two men probably tried to climb the tree to see if they could find or shout out or locate the others that they had heard maybe fall in the ravine. And uh, that and all this happened so quickly as they were yeah. trying to build this fire. I can't get any information whether the fire was actually used or whether it was just the remnants of what was intended to be a fire. Right. Like maybe as they were collecting the by firewood the by the tree okay. that they that they just died of hypothermia because here they are drunk and in their skivvies mm-hmm. out in the fucking Siberian, you know, wilderness in the middle of February, the beginning of February rather, um, which is fucking cold. Yeah. And all this happens really, really quickly. They die of hypothermia and the others died in the ravine now the only thing that i can think of that kind of contests with that is that that seems to have been a possibility that a medical examiner would have thought of right and there must be details that argued against that the use of the cause of death by saying the cause of death was quote a an unknown compelling natural force is just fucking weird it is and the only thing that argues against this one youtuber's uh otherwise pretty well thought out solution is that the ravine they fell in didn't seem to be deep enough for to to have caused them those Mm -hmm. kinds of injuries right yeah so it makes me wonder you know with all of that if well first of all if it all happened at once, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. if, because there's, you know, if somebody was drunk and they thought it would be funny to, because they're also young. So, you know, yeah. oh, they're super drunk, whatever. We're going to, 
I'm going to cut my way out of this tent. And one of them goes and then stumbles off and is like, come on. We're having a, and then another one goes after them. They get out there and are like, okay, we're going to have to build a fire. Maybe more people start gradually going after mm-hmm. them. Um, and maybe those three people died way after. Could be. You know, I, I don't, don't know. know. It's, it's, we, it's also worth mentioning that because they were off course by like so far, mm-hmm. their tensions could have been really high in yeah. that tent because they were pissed off because now right. it was going to cost them perhaps more time and more um, equipment or more, uh, you know, uh, uh, provisions than they had prepared to, to get this. And it could be that that happened. I mean, who knows? Yeah. But and it's also worth, uh, you know, it's also bear in mind that it seems like several of them slashed their slashed way out their of the way tent. Out of the it tent. wasn't just one person. Okay. So who knows? So it's the suggestion is that the tent fell on them and they had mm-hmm. to slash their way out. Well, because if they once put the tent together, on you, you can't find the door necessarily. Yeah, if they put it together during a storm and mm-hmm. just were trying to get it up, mm-hmm. you know, to get some shelter, that would explain that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if it fell on them. Um, but it but does. Why it the fuck would they slash their way out of the tent before leaving? Before gathering the clo- their warm clothes, yeah. even if they're drunk, I think well, my God, someone think... in that tent had to have been sober enough to be like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 Yuri, your come here, on. put your fucking clothes on." Heads up, it's cold outside. Well, and and then they take the time to start a fire. Now, and maybe... nobody goes out fast either. They're going slow according to the tracks. But here are my suspect things. Okay, one, I find it hard to believe it did not snow between this happening to them mm-hmm. and. Almost a month later. Yeah. So these this track thing, mm-hmm. I'm suspect. There's it's suspect to me. Well, also they may have said it, and, and but I don't. They may have said it, but I again, I'm not. I'm not a tracker, so I don't know. But I think once tracks are made in the snow, I think they can tell tracks are there even after they've been snowed on because it changes the indentation. Like it, okay. it like once there's once there's an absence of snow, it fills in. Like the, the levels are different, and so mm-hmm. experienced trackers can find tracks that have been in the snow for weeks sometimes yeah. now um, i had heard depending i mean i i don't know where yeah. that comes from I, I i think it's from the medical report that they found those okay. tracks though or from at least one of the okay yeah because I the tracks are how they knew that... the tracks are how they found the campfire which was a right. mile away okay okay you, so well i also heard that the people who had warmer clothes on that were found in the ravine mm-hmm. were wearing other members clothes yes so that's also weird. They had either they were uh, there's I've read there's two things about that which I didn't include it because it seemed kind of confused depending on who I like. They weren't wearing uh it seems what I what some per- person suggested is that they were wearing each other's clothes. In other words, the four that were in that ravine mm-hmm. were wearing each other's clothes. So it's possible that after they had fallen or died or whatever mm-hmm. whoever who died of hypothermia I had, think taken was, their had taken the clothes of the people who had died to get warmer. Try to get warmer. Okay, that makes sense. I think is what happened. Now, I don't yeah. have proof of that. Right. Um, but it seems weird. It does that. There's so many little elements of this yeah. that just don't quite add up. And I would like to also, someone who speaks Russian, mm-hmm. to read what that says. Mm-hmm. What the, because where that's the translation, but maybe in Russian, it's not as extreme. You know, it's, it could just be unknown circumstances, but not, mm-hmm. you know, circumstances beyond our knowledge, you know, and when it's translated, it sounds a little more dramatic than that. So <laughs> Good it could be Good something point. lost Good in point. translation there, too. But everyone seems to agree that that's what it means. Now, maybe that's just one piece of misinformation that's just gotten really mm-hmm. popular because of the narrative it creates. But I don't know. Yeah. it. Pro- I mean, I think it's safe to say it probably started with some drunk dudes. 
<laughs> it does, a lot of wrong shit does. Yeah. But I, I will <laughs> say the two biggest things about it that are so mysterious for most people are the lights, the UFO sightings, the lights. Mm-hmm. and the radioactive clothing. Uh, the radioactive clothing bit has been explained away, mm-hmm. um, I think, pretty well. Pretty well. And, and as yeah. far as like the, the wounds on some of them, um, I don't know. It, also, we have to, to bear in mind that maybe the medical examiner just wasn't terribly good at their job. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe it's, it's like, hard. you know, it's and creepy, though. Yeah, it's it is creepy. creepy. It's a creepy story. And it's worth bearing in mind if ever you go camping in the snow. I'm not ever going to do that ever. I never will. Fuck that. No, I'm not Fuck doing that. that. <laughs> wow. OK, thanks, Michael. You're welcome. OK, so my story, I'm also taking from the cold read <laughs> today <laughs> is about the Oregon Trail. It's just a theme and It's just a theme. It. Yeah. So, you know, I just I make I get curious. <laughs> and I start I'm like, oh, let me look at that and then I go Curiosity is a good yeah, thing it's good. for what we do. Right. Right. And then, you know, we get to tie it together. So nice. Okay. So in eighteen hundred, America's western border reached only as far as the Mississippi River. Boom, that was it. Following the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, the country nearly doubled in size and size and pushed its western edge past the Rocky Mountains. Yet, the wilderness known as Oregon Country, which included Oregon, Washington, and part of Idaho, still belonged to the Brits. Mm. A fact that made many Americans eager to settle the region and claim it for the United <laughs> States. Yeah, American- protected from them. them. Right. Fancy talking British folk across right. the pond that weren't really there. <laughs> they just Absentee wanted it. landlords. That's right. American, they were. What is it when you you move in and you just stay there? Squatters they rights. Squatter. Yeah, they got squatters <laughs> rights. That's what happened. They got squatters rights. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's how much, the West was won. That's, that's how all America squatters was, rights. Right? That's <laughs> Europeans just came over like, uh, do you have a flag? Mm. I have a flag. <laughs> I think so. I do. I'm just thinking that's an old right. lizard. Oh, are you used to tra- traversing this area, Native Americans? Oh, but we've been here for like here. a month, so it's ours now. We're going to kill you. Sorry. Yeah, right. But being taxed by the Brits is unfair. Ew. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, okay, so... Speaking of, American Indians had traversed the country for years, but European Americans, for them it was unknown territory. Lewis and Clark's secretly funded expedition in 1803 was part of a U.S. government plan to open Oregon country to settlement. If you haven't watched the drunk history on Lewis and Clark's expedition. Oh, my God. It's so funny. Please go watch it. Bookmarking it now. It's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) However, uh, the hazardous route blazed by the party was not feasible for families traveling by wagon. An easier trail was needed. Enter Robert Stewart of the Astorians. So the Astorians were a group of fur traders who established Fort Astoria on the Columbia River in western Oregon. Mm. Stewart became the first white man to use what later became known as the Oregon Trail. His 2,000-mile journey from Fort Astoria to St. Louis in 1810 took 10 months to complete. Still, though, it was a much much less rugged trail than Lewis and Clark's route. Okay. All right. So he's finding an easier path for more people. That was a very valuable thing to do back then. Yes. Yes. It wasn't until 1836 that the first wagons were used on the trek from Missouri to Oregon. A missionary party headed by Marcus and Narcissa Whitman bravely set out to reach the Willamette Valley. 
Though the Whitmans were forced to abandon their wagons 200 miles short of Oregon, they proved that families could go west by wheeled travel. Okay. In the spring of 1843, a wagon train of nearly 1,000 people organized at Independence, Missouri with plans to reach Oregon country. Amidst an overwhelming chorus of naysayers who doubted their success, the so-called Great Migration made it safely to Oregon. Good for Yay! them. Yay! Crucial to their success was the use of South Pass, a 12-mile wide valley that was virtually the only place between the plains and Oregon where wagons could cross the Rocky Mountains. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I just think of that. Like a 12, it's just 12 miles wide. It's not a lot. Yeah, it's not in the grand scheme. It's not a lot. Right. By 1846, thousands of immigrants who were drawn west by cheap land, patriotism, or the promise of a better life found their way to Oregon country. With so many Americans settling the region, it became obvious to the British that the Oregon were no longer Oregon was no longer theirs. They ceded Oregon country to the United States squatters' rights that year. In December of 1847, Lauren Hastings was walking the stump-filled, muddy streets of Portland, when Portland, Oregon, obviously. When he, I've been there. They're still muddy. Yeah. When he chanced upon a friend he had known back in Illinois, Hastings made the trip on the Oregon Trail unscathed, while his friend lost his wife. Hastings' summary of their feelings was eloquent. I look back on the long, dangerous, and precarious immigrant road with a degree of romance and pleasure, but to others... It is the graveyard of their friends. In fact, the mm. Oregon Trail is the United States' longest graveyard. Over a 25-year span, over 200,000 people traveled along the Western Overland Immigrant Trails, and up to 65,000 of those people died during the journey. Mm. If evenly spaced along the length of the Oregon Trail, there would be a grave every 50 yards from Missouri to Oregon City. The medicine kits that the pioneers carried to treat diseases and wounds included patent medicine, physicking pills, castor oil, rum or whiskey, I'm done with that, peppermint oil, also enjoyable, quinine for malaria, hartshorn for snake bites, citric acid for scurvy, opium, laudanum, morphine, calomel, and tincture of camphor. A lot of drugs. Yes. Basically. A lot of a lot of drugs to help you forget how fucking miserable and dangerous this is. Yeah. They may not necessarily cure you. But, but they make, make it less you, bad. They take your mind off. <laughs> That's it. right. <laughs> the, and there are so many ways to die. So many ways. On a wagon trail. We'll get into that. So many ways to yeah. die. The Overlanders encountered their first hardship before they even left home as leaving friends and family behind was difficult. Heading west meant they would never see the people they were leaving behind again. Ever. Yeah. So, And they knew it. When they said goodbye, that was goodbye forever. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that emotional turmoil too. Going on a trip like that, you mm-hmm. knew there was a there was a good chance you and the people with you weren't going to survive it. Yeah, I mean it was it was a huge risk that we're not accustomed to even conceiving of these days. Mm-hmm. Because you know, getting in your car and going to the store, or or even you know, getting on a plane to a different state, there's not it's a easy. lot. There's not a lot of Whatever. risk involved. At least not not that we're aware of. But man, back in those days, to pick up to haul stakes to another to another mm-hmm. state. It, man, there was just so much. It, it was a huge, huge thing. It was never made lightly. No, yeah. Well, and here's why. Uh, so, 
The covered wagons dominated traffic on the Oregon Trail. The independent style wagon was typically about 11 feet long, 4 feet wide, and 2 feet deep, with uh, boughs of hardwood supporting the bonnet. Boughs or bows? Boughs? I think it's about. I feel like that's right. Um, (laughs) Supporting the bonnet (laughs) that rose about five feet above the wagon bed with only one set of springs under the driver's seat and none on the axles. Nearly everyone walked along with their herds of cattle and sheep. Immigrants banded together into parties or companies for mutual assistance and protection. Parties usually consisted of relatives or persons from the same hometown traveling together. In some cases, they formed joint stock companies, such as the Boston and Newton Joint Stock Association, Mm. Iron City's Telegraph Company, Wild Rovers, and the Peoria Pioneers. This is why the Donner Party was a party. Yeah. And it is way too long to get into that. Hopefully we'll cover it sometime. Okay, well, but the Donner Party... Huge. It consisted of several right. hundred wagons. Yes. And that's, these are how big these yeah. parties were. Huge, So huge it is... Because there are safety numbers. Yeah, you know? exactly. And if you ran out of provisions, you could trade with other mm-hmm. wagons on the train to be like, Absolutely. hey, I'm out of flour. Can, can I... You would make... Um, that you would make, or at least the women would kind of deal among themselves, like, hey, can we owe you? Say, when we get to the the new place, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll owe you a head of cattle if you'll let us, you know, right. have some molasses or, or sugar Something. or whatever, yeah. things like that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. Organization was required to ensure a successful journey, like you were saying. The most successful groups had a written constitution, code, resolutions, or bylaws to which the immigrants could refer when disagreements threatened to get out of hand. Almost all wagon trains had regulations of some sort, and almost all groups elected or appointed officers. The regulations typically included rules for camping and marching and restrictions on gambling and drinking. There were penalties for infractions, social security for the sick or bereaved, and provisions established for the disposition of shares of deceased members of a party. Mm-hmm. A typical day started before dawn with breakfast of coffee, bacon, and dry bread. The bedding was secured and wagon repacked in time to get underway by 7 o'clock. At noon, they stopped for a cold meal of coffee, beans, and bacon, or buffalo, prepared that morning. Then... Back on the road again. Around 5 in the afternoon, after traveling an average of 15 miles, walking Mm -hmm. 15 miles, Mm -hmm. they circled the wagons for the evening. The men secured the animals and made repairs while women cooked a hot meal of tea, boiled rice with dried beef or codfish. Evening activities included schooling the children, singing and dancing, and telling stories around the campfire. Some trains insisted on stopping every Sunday, while others reserved only Sunday morning for religious activities and pushed on during the afternoon. Resting on Sundays, in addition to giving the oxen and other animals a needed break, also gave the women of the dust, uh, women of the wagon, sorry, um, of the train a chance to tend to their domestic chores. Mm -hmm. As if they weren't doing enough, please (laughs) fucking wash my clothes, mom. (laughs) And the laundry was a big deal. Their fucking day was regimented. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And the, the laundry was a big deal as the tust, dust on the trail pervaded every article of clothing exposed to it. Occasionally, a wagon train's arrival at a source of clean water was enough to prompt a special stopover for laundry day. Mm-hmm. And it's not like you changed clothes every day. No. You were wearing the same thing every day. And then when it was laundry day, you had something else to wear while everything was mm-hmm. getting cleaned. But mm-hmm. your traveling clothes, that was it. It was, it. It yeah. was just it, one. It's like yeah. your gym clothes. You didn't exactly. wash those. 
<laughs> maybe I do. Maybe once. Oh well, dudes don't. Oh. Like we maybe. Really? Maybe once a, every couple of months. What? Your gym clothes? Yeah. But they're the dirtiest. You get stinky in those. That's why you don't want to buy, because you'd be washing them every fucking day if you had to. Well, no, you just have more than one outfit. Nah, but once you find that. This isn't the Oregon Trail, Michael. It might as well be. I guess so. There should be the Oregon Trail, like CrossFit gym. Oh, God. <laughs> you wake up to bacon and beans and you have bacon and beans for lunch. I mean, it's maybe not, some buffalo. I mean, it's I'm not opposed to that part. It's basically the paleo diet. It's true. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> Let's talk about how it worked out for them. Um, but first. They died of dysentery. I'm going to say right. that so many times. So many times. Marriages and births were actually all, still special occasions on the trail, and there were a surprising number of both on the journey. Weddings were common either at the jumping off spots of, or for those romances that bloomed along the trail, on the Platte River at Fort Laramie. A tongue-in-cheek conspiracy against the privacy of newlyweds by older weds was called a chivalry. (laughs) Virtually every train had expectant numbers, mothers, sorry. Virtually every train had expectant mothers, and their newborns were often named for natural features, events, or important days. There is one story of an orphaned baby who was passed around from breast to breast so that it could be fed. Mm. So it's sweet and sad. Mm. Leaving behind keepsakes, heirlooms, or wedding gifts was a painful reality many immigrants had to eventually face. Articles too precious to leave behind in the East were later abandoned along the trail to spare weary oxen. And they weren't allowed a lot. To carry a lot. Anyway, they couldn't. I no. Mean, because the oxen would, I mean, the oxen couldn't keep it up. Exactly. I mean, there's so many, those pounds add, add up, up so yeah. quickly. Because mm-hmm. they have to have provisions for like pots, pans, clothing, money they may have, um, yeah. bedding, all that stuff. So those silver candlesticks, mm. it's not important. They stay behind. Yeah. Um, hard stretches of the trail were littered with piles of leverites. Items the immigrants had to leave a rat here <laughs> to lighten their wagons. I was like, leave rats. Leave rats. The tiring pace of the journey, 15 miles a day, almost always on foot, got to many an immigrant. There's a story of Elizabeth Markham who went insane along the Snake River, announcing to her family that she was not proceeding any farther. Her husband was forced to take the wagons and children and leave her behind, though he later sent their son back to retrieve her. When she returned on her own, her husband was her husband was informed that she had clubbed their son to death with a rock. He raced back to retrieve the boy who was still clinging to life, and on his return found that his wife had taken advantage of his absence to set fire to one of the family's wagons. Jesus Christ. Right. It's just like setting your house on fire. That's basically what she did. I mean, I've heard of people that resist mm-hmm. aerobic exercise. But but that's taking it a bit far. It is. It's true. Oof. Perils along the way caused many would-be immigrants to turn back. Weather-related dangers included thunderstorms, lethally large hailstones, lightning, tornadoes, and high winds. So, you know, your story from the beginning, that's not that far off. Mm. This seemed, you were you were on the trail. <laughs> you were having an experience. You were having an experience. And ghosts. I mean, and ghosts. Not, and whatever that fucking the, white figure was with the blood oof. coming out of its invisible mouth. The dust on its trail itself could be two or three inches deep and fine as flour. Ox shoes fell off and hooves split to be cured with hot tar. The immigrants' lips blistered and split in the dry air, and their only remedy was to rub axle grease on their lips. River crossings were often dangerous. Even if the current was slow and the water shallow, a wagon wheel could be damaged by unseen rocks or become mired in the muddy bottom. 
If dust or mud did not slow the wagon, stampedes of domestic herd animals or wild buffalo often would. Mm. Nearly one in ten who set off on the Oregon Trail did not survive. The two biggest causes of death were disease and accidents. The disease with um, the worst reputation was the Asiatic cholera, known as the Unseen Destroyer. Wow. So. Cholera. Cholera crept silently, caused by unsanitary conditions. So people were camping amid garbage that was left by previous parties. And you think about that for all of the dust. So there's, you know, groups of 100 wagons going. And then a little bit later, you go through where how many groups of 100 wagons, Mm -hmm. you know, had been Mm -hmm. through. So there's a lot of trash. There's a lot of of human waste. Human waste. All of that stuff. though, it still gets, you know. And if that had disease. All this talk is making me laugh. Yeah, I know. (laughs) <laughs> Bless you. It's all the dust. Uh, <laughs> the talk of dust. That's how woke I am. Um, so they would go by those parties, pick up the disease, and then spread it amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. People in good spirits in the morning could be in agony by noon and dead by evening. Symptoms started with a stomachache that grew into intense pain within minutes. Then came diarrhea and vomiting that quickly dehydrated the victim. Within hours, the skin was wrinkling and turning blue. If death did not occur within the first 12 to 24 hours, the victim usually recovered. Damn. Yeah. It was intense. Yeah. Accidents were caused by negligence, exhaustion, guns, animals, and the weather. Shootings were common, but murders were rare. One usually shot themselves, a friend, or perhaps one of the draft animals when a gun discharged accidentally. Shootings, drownings, being crushed by a wagon wheel, and injuries from handling domestic animals were the biggest accident killers on the trail. Any of these four causes of death claimed more lives than were lost to sharp instruments, falling objects, rattlesnakes, buffalo hunts, hail, lightning, and other calamities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was shootings, drownings, being crushed by wagon wheels, and uh, injuries from handling domestic animals. That is what killed the majority of the people. It's clear now that Native Americans were usually among the last or the least of the immigrants' problems, though the overlanders clearly thought otherwise at the time. Mm -hmm. Tales of hostile encounters far out overshadowed actual incidents, and relations between immigrants and Native Americans were further complicated by triggered-happy immigrants who shot at Indians for target practice. A few massacres were highly publicized as well, which further reinforced the myth. For example, there was the Ward train that was attacked by Shoshones who tortured and murdered 19 immigrants. One boy escaped with an arrow in his side. That gets, you know, publicized. People think that's what's happening all the time, and it wasn't. It was a a very rare... pretty isolated incident. Yes. Berries... Uh, burials occurred all along the trails while some family members were buried in wagon boxes or other improvised caskets a shortage of wood meant most had a shroud of a blanket or a quilt if anything at all graves were frequently left unmarked to thwart grave robbers and sometimes made right in the path of the trail where the passing of wagon wheels could pack down the soil and obliterate any evidence of the burial Most likely, this type of preventative burial is the reason there are approximately only 200 known graves throughout all of Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, Wyoming, Idaho, and Oregon. 200. When... Of the, what, Mm 65,000. Yep. Here are a couple noteworthy graves. John Shotwell. That's a... 
Do you want to guess what happened? Did he get shot? Yes. <laughs> oh. He made the fatal mistake of getting his gun out of the wagon muzzle first. Apparently, he was the very first person to die on the Oregon Trail from a firearm accident. And his name was Shotwell. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That seems just like bad writing. But, but it's, it's true. true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Frequently, As, life know. plays out like a poorly it's written It's a little opera. crazy, yeah. S.M. Marshall was a cholera victim who specifically requested burial on a high place facing Kentucky. His limestone marker, which would have been very rare, mm. remained untouched, untouched for 80 years wow. until someone was like, here you go, Kansas State Historical Society. We're going to move this from the grave and give it to you. We're going to make way for a Starbucks. No Probably doubt. something like that. There's the rarely noted trail experience also involving something similar to a Tibetan sky burial. A few immigrants. Oh, yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. A few immigrants on route had quite the surprise when they climbed trees to view what they thought were eagles' nests, but instead found them to be Native American burial sites. Little did they know that it was the custom of some Indian tribes, Sioux and Blackfoot specifically, to bury their dead in tree scaffolds so that they would be closer to the spirit world. Mm-hmm. Whoopsies. Ghost. Um, (laughs) Unfortunately, not all the pioneer markers could endure the passage of time. In 1997, former Nebraska native Marilyn Toole wrote poignantly about some some of the disappearing grave sites at Chimney Rock. In the Oregon Trail lore, one will find stories of a party of eight that died from cholera and had to be buried near Chimney Rock. When I returned to Nebraska in 1992 to visit my hometown... I met the man who runs the Oregon Trail rides in Gearing near Bayard. I hope it's Gearing. I don't know. It's G-E-R-I-N-G near Bayard. I don't know. Gearing. Okay. I have no idea. I told him about the graves, and he said he had been looking for them ever since he started the business. He and I looked nearly all day but couldn't find a trace of them. When I returned home to the East Coast, I hunted down my old friend from childhood days and paid her a visit. I asked her if she remembered the little graveyard from her childhood. She told me her parents had ended up buying the land and that, yes, she did think it included the little plot— but she had left home by them and never really explored it. Since the markers were from the very, um, since the markers were from the very soft sandstone that is native to the area, we now think that they were just plowed under when the land was leased to farmers. Her mother had no knowledge of the graves. <sighs> yeah, that's so sad. Mm-hmm. That's so sad. But it just goes to show you how many. How many dead are completely forgotten about? Uh-huh. There's no marker. And that continues on. Like mm-hmm. when we had Beth on, I was just talking about this entire cemetery that's mm-hmm. just been, it's there, there. but no yeah. one knows about it because we're going to build an apartment complex. Right. Around it. Surrounding oh, it. Jesus. There was a man by the name of Sam Barlow who owned Barlow Road on the Oregon Trail. Laurel Hill was the worst spot on Barlow Road, which was saying something. The rest <laughs> of Barlow Road was not exactly posh. It was so steep that wagons had to be lowered down the slope with block and tackle. Some of these parties hadn't brought strong enough rope, and more than a few wagons hurtled down the hill to end up in a messy and often bloody wreck. And, to add insult to injury, each party had paid Barlow the then pricely sum of $5 for permission to use the road, which he had blazed in 1845. The alternative, though... A wild and chancy excursion through the rapids of the Columbia River in a mm. cocked wagon 
or on a prohibitively expensive ferry was worse. Mm. Still, typically by the time an immigrant party reached Laurel Hill, everyone was exhausted. The livestock were skinny and feeble, and often at least one person was on the brink of death. Laurel Hill pushed more than a few of those over the threshold. At the bottom of the hill was a more or less permanent camp where the immigrants would stop, nurse their wounds, catch their breath, and bury their dead. Today, that site of the camp is Rhododendron (laughs) Village. Rhododendron Village, the flower rhododendrons, you know? Rhododendron? Yeah, it's a flower. Rhododendron. Yeah. Yeah, it's a flower. Rhodes. Yeah. Rhodes. Um,. Because, well, the so there's Laurel Hill that was named for laurels, but they weren't actually laurels. They were rhododendrons. Yeah. <laughs> so it's Rhododendron Village, and it's basically an old logging camp, and the word is, it's haunted. Oh! Strange glowing orbs have appeared in photos taken out of the... Uh, taken in the old bunkhouse. The buildings, which don't have much in the way of foundations, shake mysteriously as if under footsteps. And most puzzlingly, puzzlingly, when an old piano with a mirror on the front of it was photographed, a woman's face appeared in the mirror as if she was playing it. There's also a door in the old mess hall between the cook's sleeping quarters and the kitchen area that is reputed to be open. It's to open by itself every day at 4 a.m. The theory is that a ghostly cook is getting up to start fixing breakfast. Volunteers in 2001 found a pair of rock-covered graves, a pioneer grave and a Native American grave near the mess hall. Of course, a photo was taken. When the film was developed, those strange orbs were hovering above them. And there are stories like this, haunted houses, stuff like that, that are connected to the Oregon Trail. Different weird stuff that happens. And there's just so much of it. And it's so much area that I can't cover all of the hauntings. That's just an example. And here... I wanted to do this more because I found this story that is told by an old settler who was on the Oregon Trail. Oh. Uh-huh. There's a it's an excerpt from Charles Dawson's book, Pioneer Tales from the Oregon Trail in Jefferson County. It was published in 1912. Dawson lived in Jeff- Jefferson County, Nebraska, for more than 40 years and personally knew many of the pioneers who traveled along the Oregon Trail. So he collected these stories and um to the best of his ability, you know, and, and some of the stories too, there were certain incidents that he, there were different recollections of it. Mm-hmm. So we tried to put it together, but this is one man's story of what happened to him. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. It's kind of long, so bear with me, but okay. it's great. I'm in. I'm, okay. in. I'm in. In the late 1860s, my wife and I, with our bunch of tow-headed youngsters, were headed westward, traveled by traveling by ox team in a canvas-topped wagon bound for Nebraska, in response to the solicitations of my father, who had settled there a few years previously. Crossing the Missouri River in the early days of spring at St. Joseph, we joined one of the first caravans of immigrants going westward over the old Oregon Trail. Traveling over the wonderful prairies and through the rich valleys of eastern Kansas, we had our ideas of the great American desert rudely but pleasantly shattered. In due time, we reached our destination and encamped on the tract of land that had been selected for us, which was a well-timbered and watered body of land lying along a spring-fed stream that ran back into a valley which was flanked by bluffs capped by ledges of sandstone. Our new home lay about halfway between the Old Oregon Trail and the Little Blue River. But this is all I will tell you, for ghosts and their haunts should not be too definitely located, as it might spoil their charms or veracity, if there be any. Hmm. 
We immediately commenced the building of a home and, with the aid of my relatives and neighbors, contrived to erect a habitable log cabin, a one-room affair with a loft above, a clabbered roof, mud and stick chimney, and a stone fireplace at one end. Compared with our previous places of habitation and modes of living, this seemed, at first, to be very primitive and almost unendurable, but before long we grew to regard this homely little log cabin as the coziest place it had been our pleasure to reside in. With the coming of the warm days of spring, we broke out the little flats of land along the creek bottom and planted them with corn, potatoes, melons, etc. Gardens were made, and we entered into the cultivation of our promising crops, hoping to reap an abundance of our needs. Nature had by now fully bedecked the whole panorama with a wonderful profusion of foliage, foliage, blossom, and color. Our little world seemed to be filled to overflowing with promise and happiness. Strawberry time had come. The hillsides were covered with the patches of this red, luscious fruit. One Sunday morning, my wife and I, light of heart, arm in arm, set out to roam the hillsides to gather a pail full of strawberries. We were soon in the midst of a profusion of strawberries so plentiful, full, and ripe on all sides of us that we ran here and there, trampling underfoot many berries in our greed to secure the nicest ones. Our pail was soon full to the brim, and our fingers and lips stained from picking and eating until we were so full we had to stop. Then, feeling the tire of contented satisfaction, we sat down upon a convenient rock, lazily viewing the surrounding scenery, resting before we would attempt our homebound journey. With half-closed eyes laying back on a big shaded ledge of stone, my thoughts were dwelling on the incidents of the short past, in which we had left the comforts of civilization and had taken up our abode in this land of promise— thinking how content we were. Just as I began to conjecture the future, I was aroused by an exclamation from my wife, who was now pointing across a rock-welled ravine to a springy spot shaded by scattered clumps of underbrush. Brushing aside the sleepy tangles of my eyes, I noticed the cause of her excitement, which I first thought to be Indians. Underneath and in the tangles of leaf and stem, quite in contrast to the rich background of green, were berries strawberries of great size and blood-red color, rivaling even the choicest of the same ones we had seen in the gardens of our eastern homes. Leaving our already filled pail, we hastened over to view the wonderful sight. Picking and eating the first few that we came to, we decided to take some home in my old hat and in the wife's apron. So, with many noises of wonder and surprise, we filled these articles. As I strode through a thick tangle of brush and leaving the patch, my foot caught on an object which threw me which threw me to the ground, and on turning over, I found at my feet the skull of a human being. <gasps> Leaping up, I rushed out of the thicket almost completely unnerved at my ghastly find. My wife, who had witnessed my stumble and quick leap up, ran back towards me, inquiring with alarm the cause of this unusual actions. Together we walked back, and I pointed to the eyeless bare skull that was apparently grinning at us from his moldy moss-covered retreat, from which my foot had ruthlessly torn him but a moment before. Proceeding into the thicket to investigate more fully, we found that underneath the leafy and molding foliages of the past seasons which had covered their bodies were the bones of many other persons. In fact, our strawberry patch had been the burial ground of the unknown dead. My wife and I, stilled by the presence of the dead, stood with bowed heads and silently offered up prayers to him on high, who alone could give the solution to this mystery. Glancing up, I met the gaze of my wife, 
and overturned my old hat as the corner of her apron were dropped and the berries spilled to the ground, for we both knew, without further questioning, what had caused the berries to be so big and so red. Then we made a thorough... <laughs> I know. Then we made a thorough search thereabout for the bones of the unknown dead, faithfully gathering the bones as they lay, endeavoring to give each skull its own and a full complement of bones. Finally, we felt that this duty had been performed and the result was twelve skeletons, which we judged were a party of immigrants, of men, women, and children. After considerable labor, a grave was dug and the bones placed within and filled up with earth and stones covering the top to mark and protect the graves. Thoroughly tired by our toil, we wended our way homeward, conscious that we had fulfilled our duty to those poor unfortunate beings by giving them at least a burial. After supper, we gathered on the doorstep of the twilight of the evening, feeling content and peaceful, when there came an uncanny, weird moan or cry, like that of a woman or child in the depth of anguish or despair. Listening in awe, I awaited the repetition of that mournful sound. Soon it came, now in the fringe of trees above the cabin, then in the waist-high corn. Swiftly recalling the incidents of the day, I tried to assure myself that it was not real— that this was but the result of a befuddled mind, just imagination. But the children were now questioning us as to the cry, and upon receiving non-committal answers, and perhaps reading our faces, they grew frightened and began to cry. To assert myself and to allay their fears, I arose and said to my wife, hand me my rifle and I will go down there and shoot that old owl, tree toad, or whatever it may be. Leaving my wife and children on the porch, I proceeded to search about in the growing corn around the barn, and all through the nearby underbrush, but without result, although I seemed to be following the voice from point to point. Finally, it seemed to be at the cabin. Hastening there, I found that my family had fled within and had barred the door. Undaunted, I continued the search, following the clues from where I heard the voice. After vain attempts which led me to the roof, around and underneath the cabin, I was too frightened and went into the cabin. There was not much sleep for us that night, for we could hear the cries of our unearthly visitor at frequent intervals until the early dawn of the morning. Night after night, we had much the same experience until we grew accustomed to it and were but little disturbed. Our neighbors joined with us on several occasions to find the mysterious visitor, but despite the most exacting vigils and search, we gave it up for not one single object or reason could be found that might be suspected of making the nightly occurring sounds, which the neighbors dubbed the Lost Woman Ghost. The summer wore on, succeeded by the bountiful autumn harvests. We should have been happy and content, but the nightly visitor had worn on our nerves. So after the harvest had been gathered, I was only too glad to sanction the wife's suggestion that we go and live with my father down on the Little Blue River for the winter, as it was too lonesome away up here by ourselves. We spent the long winter down there, hunting and trapping, returning occasionally to see if everything was all right at our homestead, but never staying overnight, so we did not know if our unwelcome guest had departed or not. With the opening days of spring, we moved back, for our crops needed to be planted and tended, and the first night of our return was celebrated by the usual performance of the unseen voice. Of course, this was annoying, but what could we do? Then there was no harm resulting, so we settled down, accepting the situation as best we could. Strawberry time came again, and we started out once more to search the hillside and ravines for the big red berries. 
Our wanderings brought us to the burial place of the unknown party of people that we had found a year ago. Here we stood for a moment with bared heads in reverence, swiftly recalling the incidents of their past as we knew of them, praying that we may in some way learn who they were so that their relatives might know of their fate. And we realized the improbability of this. So we turned away with dimmed eyes and continued to ascend the hill. Upon reaching the top, we sat down upon a large flat boulder to rest. The whole panorama lay spread out at our feet, and across the ravine to our right was a hillside, almost mountainous in appearance, cut and broken by irregular rock-filled canyons or gorges, down which trickling spring-fed streams flowed. The rock-strewn hillside was covered with straggling growths of dwarfed oaks and hackberry trees, with the hill itself rising high to the blue skyline capped with a heavy ledge of brown sandstone, which was cracked and fissured deeply with dark recesses and many overhanging shells, which suggested ideal retreats for wild animal life. As we searched with our eyes, every part of its face for some new wonder of formation, a ghastly sight came to our vision, the skeleton of a human being. On closer investigation, we found it to be that of a woman, huddled in a crouched, squatting position, back against the wall of a cavern-like place, seemingly as though she had taken refuge here, only to be found, and had raised her arms to ward off the blow that had stilled her life. Tenderly, we gathered up the bones and carried them down to the burial place, and interred them with the rest, whom we judged to have been her companions. The afternoon was spent in the search for others that might be lying unburied on the hillsides, but the search proved fruitless. Our only other find being a few piles of fire-warped wagon irons and charred woodwork, near which lay bones of oxen, many having the wooden yokes still around their necks. A few arrows were found scattered about in these piles of bones, so we knew that this was the work of Indians. In the twilight of that evening, I sat upon the broad doorstep of our cabin, thinking of all these things, the part we had played, and who these people might have been. Then came the thought. Could there be any connection between them and the ghostly visitor? If so, perhaps it would give me an answer tonight. Though I waited and meditated long into the night, I was in one way disappointed, for the voice did not come that night and never again afterward. So to me, the mystery has deepened as the years have gone by. Was this the spirit of the murdered woman beseeching me to bury her bones beside those we had previously buried, who no doubt had met a similar fate? I hope so. And if this gave rest to the soul, let it be the end. Oh. And I love it because it is oh. a ghost story told from before 1900. Yeah. And, uh, and a real ghost and story. And a real one. Like, oh! By... Oh, that's so good. Yeah. I, I was so like, good. I just want to read this story so bad. So thank you can for you imagine? Can you even imagine, like, finding this little homestead and setting up... And then being like, oh, bones in the garden or bones here. Like, I had that visual image of them uh with like full of strawberries and realizing why they were just letting them fall. Nope. Yeah. (laughs) Nope. Thank you. Those are corpse berries. No, thank you. They're corpse berries. Corpse berries. Oh. Sounds like a cereal. Seriously, though, they're probably delicious. I mean, well, yeah, very, that that phosphorus. Right. It's like the grapes that grow on Pavalia. Mm hmm. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, so that is the Oregon Trail, the longest graveyard in the United States. That is, 
That's some freaky shit. It is. Thank and you just you. think of all of the ways, you know, how many people died and how often it happened and in groups and stuff, you know, like that. Of course, the Native Americans, it was rare for this to happen. But mm-hmm. to but it did somebody, happen. It did some, happen. Some tribes yeah. were very hostile, understandably. Right. Um, but it's just it's something we take for granted now that like mm-hmm. taking a trip in those days uh, of this kind, like was such a life change and was such a risk. Oh, yeah. Um, that it's not even conceivable to us anymore for mm-hmm. most of us here in the West. Yep. That is... That is quite something. There's mm-hmm. a there's a quote from the Tony Kushner play um, Angels in America, and early on when mm-hmm. when a rabbi is giving a, a eulogy, and he says like, "Oh, this woman made a great journey across the ocean, which no such journeys are no longer made," mm-hmm. and that's kind of true, you know. Yeah. Like this, she brought the old world with her, and and the risks and the 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 heartache, just the the the, uh, the whole welter of emotions yeah. and of fate that were involved in those journeys, just we don't have anymore. No, we don't. Oh, that was great. That was great. Yeah. Thank you. It, and it now makes me want to do a bit on the Donner Party. I know. Which we, we probably do an will. Entire episode on. Actually, I know. There's so, so. much to it. Mm-hmm. Ooh, it'll be Ooh. good. It's I mean, it's not going to be right away though, guys. We have some other stuff out of time. Yeah, but... give us give us some time. We yeah. have we have quite a few things lined up. Yeah, we do. Because I already know some what my going to be. Yeah, it should be very exciting. Well, thank you for all that. No problem. Thank you for all of that. Ah, you're well. Mine was easy. I just talked about nine people on a mountain. You talked about a whole graveyard. Two hundred thousand people. <laughs> That's what I talked a about. A long ass graveyard. Two hundred thousand and one. Damn. Two. Two. Amy and Mike. <laughs> oh gosh <laughs> well thank you guys for listening yes, um yes. that's it for today's episode of ghoul intentions yay we'll go to our you know we have a facebook page you know the we drill we have a twitter we have an instagram um we're all the on, things we're even on the youtube now you the youtubes yeah, which is so much fun yeah you i feel so legit i don't know why i know because it's not but it's <laughs> <laughs> It's yeah. not at all. Um, oh, we're gonna, we're but, gonna, we're gonna get hit. Uh, <laughs> That's fine. I know. There's, there's no safe space. Not for me. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's just part of my life now. But uh, your life is an Oregon Trail. <laughs> it is. <laughs> the online equivalent of an Oregon Trail. I know. Oh, oh my gosh. So, uh, but anyway. <laughs> Go give us your stories. We need your stories. Yes. Um, stories are so good. We've gotten some really good ones, really too. Have, so keep yeah. them coming. The podcast apps, we're on all of those. <laughs> Rate us, review us, give us all yes. the good juices. Yes, yes, uh, yes. That sounds um, gross now that I say it. <laughs> I hear myself sometimes, and I'm like, mm, that's just, not that what I That just came out of my mouth. I, that's yeah. welcome to my world. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you, of course you can go to goldintentions.com for yes. links to the sites we just mentioned, to listen to previous episodes, which I will say are pretty goddamn good. We like them. Also to shop at our store. That's right, we have shirts. Yes, we have shirts. They're so cool. I I'm, I'm seeing more and more people sending pictures of them, which I is know. really, really awesome. So, yeah, if you yeah. have a shirt, take a picture of yourself. Yeah, we please like get on that. Get on that. Um, tweet that's really awesome. Insta. And if you go to the right, you can also submit your own personal story Do for consideration it. to be read on a future episode as the cold open of um, ghoul intentions oh yes and submitting could not be easier because right. uh, it's been there's a whole forum and everything yeah whole forum it's so, it's so simple yeah. and if you have emails or you don't want anything like if you just have an email you want to send us we will take that too that is uh, ghoul intentions podcast 
at gmail.com. Cool intentions podcast. Yes. You can send us emails there too. Um, but, you know, if you email us, it could be read online. Just know that. <laughs> and please, you know, thanks for the support, you guys. But if you can, if you have the time, give us a review on iTunes, uh, mm-hmm. especially, like, it really helps us out. Yes. And uh, we really, for those of you that have, we really appreciate it. And just do everything you can to spread the word so we can keep doing this awesome, awesome thing that we love because we have so many more stories. We do. We want to tell. But first, we have a quote. Well, you have, I a, have quote a quote that I I'm have ready. to guess. And I'm not very good at these. You're not. That's fair. <laughs> it's just a fact. I'm you know, not. it's hard though. They're they're very difficult. They're very well. They're, they're very difficult because I have to have knowledge of pop culture, and I don't have much knowledge of and pop I culture. I feel like fucking I, love that. I was I was raised on Mars in a cave. He was raised inside a piano. That's what it was with books. <laughs> on Mars is a is a library in a inside of a piano. That's where he was raised. <laughs> and we're just educating him. Is really what it is. Thank you. And I do feel like smarter. an alien. Okay, you ready? Sure. I'm very important. I have many leather-bound books, and my apartment smells of rich mahogany. <laughs> You're like, is it me? I was going to say, like, <laughs> it's not fair to use things I have said to you. I know. Um. <laughs> it's really funny because I know a lot of people know what this is, and it and it brings me joy. What is it saying? What, okay, can okay you one do, more time. Okay, good, do me a favor. Can you do your best rendition of the actual person saying it? No. You can do your best. I'm only asking for your best. I don't remember exactly how it goes, but it's... Okay. It's Come on. very important. I have many leather-bound books, and my apartment smells of rich mahogany. <laughs> that may not be right at all, but that's how I envision it. I have absolutely no idea. It's from Anchorman, the oh, legend of Ron Burgundy. God damn it. Yay. <laughs> I haven't seen it in a long time. I know. I haven't either. It came out. I haven't seen it Funny in a long time shit, either, though. so if that impersonation was off, well... <laughs> Is, Don't is, hate is, me. Is Will Ferrell the one who says it? I believe so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Thank Thanks, you, guys. guys. And remember, it's, it's okay, okay to sleep, sleep with the, the lights, lights on. on.